Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have in the studio a very special guest. We're going to have a conversation with Dr. Karen Peterson Finch. She is here at Beeson to deliver our Reformation Heritage Lectures on this, the 25th year of having those lectures. So welcome, Karen, to Beeson and to the lectureship and to this podcast. Thank you so much, Timothy. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Now, you teach at Whitworth College in the mm-hmm. state of Washington in Spokane. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about Whitworth and your own experience of being there. It was Whitworth College. is actually now Whitworth University. And Whitworth University is a liberal arts Christian university. We have about 2,000 students in the traditional undergrad program and probably 500 more in terms of graduate yeah. uh, education. And we have a wonderful legacy of combining Christian faith with pursuit of honest and difficult questions. Yeah. And we we really have a marvelous atmosphere, loving, very welcoming place, very thoughtful place. Yeah. And that's where you and I met a couple yes. of years ago for the Whitworth Institute for Ministry. Mm-hmm. It's a summer pastor's program. And we have another connection through Dr. Beck Taylor, who is now the president of Whitworth and used to be the dean of the business school here on our campus. Yes. So our connections are multiplying, I think, <laughs> between our two institutions. Absolutely. You're a Presbyterian yourself, an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your ministry and you know how you've come to that position. I was ordained in 1994. I attended Princeton Theological Seminary after earning my degree in English at Pomona College in California. So I skipped coasts. I went mm. from California to Princeton uh-huh. and um, was ordained there or was educated there, finished in 93, was married halfway through that. It was quite intense. And then our first call was to Whitworth as interim chaplains. So our first call, my husband and I, was to campus ministry um, in that setting. And then my ministry took an interesting turn toward staying home, as it is called, with three children. Mm. And so for many years, I was home-focused, And I also taught as a theologian in residence in churches in the Seattle and Spokane areas. So I really became a theologian in the church. Now, you mentioned your husband. I just want you to say a little bit. I met him when I was on your campus, and he's such a wonderful person and such an unusual ministry he has. Would you say a word about that? Yes. My husband, Kevin, was a pastor for 14 years and also happens to be a lover of food and a vivid writer. So he got a chance to become a food writer as a part-time thing on the side. And after about two years, he felt strongly convicted that he was supposed to leave the church ministry and begin pastoring the restaurant community. So my creative husband set up something called Big Table, which is a nonprofit, and it exists to create community around food and to care for people in the restaurant community who are slipping through the cracks. And so it's uh, a marvelous blend of kind of fellowship and support. And my husband, of course, is deeply Christian and jokes that at first, 
when he said that he was a pastor, people would run away from him. Uh, but it's gotten to the point where, uh, no, he he loves them and they love him, and he he's there to love with no strings attached, and he's mobilizing church people to do the same. And it's a marvelous it's marvelous to watch something that came out of his heart actually come to be and bless so many people. Well, you're both so gifted, and we're delighted you could be here. You're talking this week in our lectures. You have a fascinating title, and I'm going to ask you to do something very difficult, and that is to summarize your whole three lectures (laughs) in just a very brief time, because we don't have, I want to get to some other things on the podcast, but your title of your lectureship is John Calvin, Postmodernism, and Power. Mm -hmm. What in the world do those three things have in common? Well, the lecture series has three parts. The first is a sermon on 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, uh, where we looked at the problem of pride. And sort of the thesis that comes out of the sermon and then is played with in the lectures is this idea of the danger of claiming too much for ourselves and then not laying claim to enough of the abundance we have in Christ. Paul basically says that that's what the Corinthians did. In their pride, they missed what Christ had for them, and it took the message of Christ crucified to correct that. And so we pull that thesis then into a discussion of Calvin as a theologian of humility in message and method, and how that theology trains us for evangelism today. Mm. And then that will also pull in again to the third lecture or presentation, which I haven't done yet, mm-hmm. which is on Calvin's theology as being empowering to church yeah. people. Yeah. And we will focus there on the image of Jesus Christ as prophet, king, and priest. If you'd like to hear these lectures, you just go to our Beeson website and check on the bookstore and you can order either the audio or the video version through there. There'll be information for you, and it'd be well worth your doing. I think these are fantastic lectures on Calvin, postmodernism. I have to throw in humility, because that was a big theme, and power. Fascinating. Now, when we were together at Whitworth University for the pastor's uh, event out there a couple of years ago, I heard you do a presentation that I thought was so good, I have asked if you would share that in a brief format with our podcast listeners here. You talked about the 10 disciplines for church theologians. Mm -hmm. These are very practical. If you're listening, you're not driving down the road, you may want to just jot these down or listen to the podcast again and get them because they're really excellent for pastors. How to be a church theologian. And, And we might just say, this is not just for professional theologians who do theology in the academy. This really has a a deep connection to pastors and those who are working in a local church setting. The first one uh, is cultivate self-awareness. What do you mean by that? I'm inspired in this by the work of Catholic theologian Bernard Lonergan, who has tremendous interest in method. What's our theological method? And he says the reason that you want to have a method when you think about God is not to be rigid, but to make you aware of your own thinking. And theology has many activities that are kind of sub-activities that are in it, such as talking historically or interpreting scripture or relating teachings to other teachings. And so the key is to know what am I doing when I am doing theology? Am I doing interpretation right now? Am I doing history? So that you're self-aware and self-correcting. And your second discipline is Scripture plus one. Now, that's a little uh, confusing. I thought we Protestants believed in sola scriptura. What do you mean by Scripture plus one? 
Scripture Plus One is to live in the Scripture, but also to choose one theologian from the historical Christian tradition to be with you as a guide as you go through the Scripture. And so, as of course, this week, because I'm focusing on Calvin, my great recommendation to any of you would be Calvin, because particularly with Calvin, you will get his acumen on church history, you'll get his skill as a Bible interpreter, you'll get his feisty dialogue with the positions of his day. And so, in other words, you will get quite a bit of quite a few different theological activities to guide you as you read the scripture. What a wonderful recommendation. And with Calvin, we might give the encouragement, of course, the Institutes of the Christian Religions, his great masterpiece, but also his commentaries on the scriptures. Yes, his commentaries are marvelous. And also his letters and also his sermons. Yes. It's very important to read beyond the Institutes if possible. Your third one, sharpen your grasp of Christian history. Now, that's one as a church historian that I just absolutely love. (laughs) Say something about that. I feel that in theology, there's nothing new under the sun, as the biblical verse goes. Many of the positions and ideas that we hear are not new. They've been heard before. They've been articulated before. And so uh, many times, if you're aware of this, when you hear something in your church community that doesn't sound quite right, but you're not sure why, if you have some grasp of history, you at least know where to look for how this question might have been responded to in the past. Mm. And then identify your hermeneutical tendencies. Yes, that word hermeneutical simply means interpretation. And I really think that all of us have our ways of dealing with Scripture that are familiar for us. And again, we need to be aware of what they are. If you find yourself um, turning to one teacher of the Bible over others, why is it that you value them? Or could there be something missing in there? Do you need to stretch a different direction? So I love, for example, Calvin's principle is always on the unity of the mm-hmm. Old Testament and the New Testament, never setting one against the other. Mm-hmm. And that would be an interpretive strategy that I wish we all had. Uh, the next one is be aware of the connections between your personal history and your theology. Mm-hmm. It's interesting today in the conversation after my lecture, someone asked uh, whether Calvin ever became the humble person that he Mm -hmm. wanted to become. Mm -hmm. And some would say yes, some would say no. But the point is that even Calvin, his theology was shaped by the person that he was, Mm -hmm. by his own struggles in faith, by his own struggle to become more like Jesus. And so I think... uh, It's to realize that we all bring more to theology than our heads. We also bring our hearts, and we also bring our histories. And so, again, to be aware of um, what, what we think and why we might think it, given what our journey has been. I love a definition of theology I learned from William Ames, who was a great Puritan theologian and wrote a textbook called The Marrow of Sacred Divinity, which was the first textbook used at Harvard College when it was established in 1636. Hmm. And he said, Theologia Escientia Vivendo Deo, which means in Latin, theology is the science of living in the presence of God. 
Oh, that's and beautiful. And so it covers your whole life, your joys, your fears, your yes. ups, your downs. And so that's really what you're getting. Uh, don't ignore that. Yes. When you come to the study of the scriptures and of the, the things of God. Well, and also when someone in your community has a strong feeling or a strong uh, theological response and you don't understand why and maybe you don't agree, if you can learn enough about who they are, you may know then why they mm. take this so strongly. And you may then know how to love them even across difference if that's what ends up being the case. I am talking to Dr. Karen Peterson Finch. She's a professor of theology at Whitworth University. She's here at Beeson presenting our Reformation Heritage Lectures. And we're going right now through the 10 disciplines for church theologians that she has come up with, and I think they're wonderful. And we're now at one, be consciously Christocentric, like Calvin. Yes, I think uh, Paul said uh, that he knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. And that would be wisdom, I think, to approach theology in that way. In my courses on theology, one of my courses is the doctrine of God, when we talk about the attributes of God. Mm -hmm. And it's been made clear to me that when you consider the cross of Christ, all the classical attributes of God are present in the cross of Christ. Mm, So you really can't miss. You know, Philip Melanchthon is famous for his saying that to know Christ is to know his benefits. Yes. To focus on Jesus Christ and what he means, pro nobis, Luther says, for us. Mm-hmm. For us. So Christ the center, Christ uh, the one, the heart of the gospel. Now the next one is closely related, I think, to the one we've just talked about. Maybe you could say something about their connection. Be consciously Trinitarian, mm-hmm. like Calvin, too. The doctrine of the Trinity sometimes seems to church people like um, a twisted math formula where three is supposed to be one and one is supposed to be three. Um, And it's really not that at all. What it really is is saying that everything that God does is because of who God is. Mm. And so if, if we are speaking of the story of the Bible, we need to not only talk about what God has done for us, but we need to know more about who God is for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is why Trinitarian theology is so important mm. for us. Next one, don't be afraid to come to conclusions. Why did you put that in there? I know that um, it's difficult to have conversation about theological topics. We know that always these co- these topics can bring discord sometimes. And so... For those who are church leaders, whether lay or clergy, this this hot zone feeling can make them reluctant to make any kind of pronouncement as far as the best way to think about a piece of biblical mm. truth. Mm. And I would so much rather have theologians on the ground make an attempt, take a stab at it. If you're wrong, you can always ask forgiveness of that person at a later date. And you can always present conclusions with humility. But I do think that people need to hear your conclusions, and they need to hear that you do have confidence that there are some things that are true and there are some things that are simply not true. I always like professors who will tell people what they actually believe themselves Mm -hmm. and not always on the one side this and the other Mm -hmm. side that. Mm -hmm. Now there's a place to be objective and take all points of view into consideration, but come down somewhere at the end of the day. (laughs) Absolutely. And and the fear is always that I'll, for me personally, that I'll come down in the wrong place. Mm. But um, my professor used to say, 
that don't let the best be the enemy of the good. That's great. That's great. Now, monitor your lived theology. That's number nine on your list. What do you mean by that? If you talk about Christ's humility in an arrogant way, you have undone your message. Mm -hmm. And so it is so easy for us to think abstractly Mm -hmm. and not realize that we are living sermons. Mm-hmm. And everything we do is is open uh, to the visibility of our neighbors. I wonder if I could pursue this just a little bit yes. because, you know, in theology, there's this maybe it's a tension or a different way of doing it. Some people only think about ideas and logic and a system of thought, mm-hmm. whereas other people are always talking about their experience mm-hmm. and their own personal narrative. And I guess I'm a kind of both and I want both and. But what do you think about how to get that balance right? I also would be a, a both-and person, Timothy, very much so. I think that the Christian gospel is always embodied. Mm-hmm. It's always incarnate because we have a Lord who incarnates. And so that means that people's individual stories do matter. And that's part of the gospel, mm-hmm. that we do matter. Mm-hmm. But the little stories have the tendency to become all-encompassing. And so Calvin says that God's bigger story is like a straight edge to which we are subject, to which we can measure ourselves. So I would think of it more as kind of a dynamic relationship between um, the bigger story and my personal story, between logic, if you will, and feeling, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the last one uh, is maybe the most important one, certainly one you wouldn't want to leave out, I think. Last and first, pray. There will be a point when we are in the presence of God where we will not need theology anymore. As much as I love it, it's true. It's a temporary tool. And in that case, what we will do is worship. And so I think part of our life now is to anticipate those conditions by praying, praying, and worshiping, and making sure that God to us is always a person and not just an answer to some question. Well, you and I saw a a painting in my office here at Beeson of St. Augustine. And in this painting, he's shown on his knees in all of his bishop's garments and everything. This is a medieval depiction. We don't really know what Augustine looked like. But he's praying and nipping at his heels are these gargoyle looking like demons. Yes. And I think that's in a way a picture of theology. It's a picture of the Christian life. It's It's a picture of pastoral identity, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. always on our knees, uh, knowing that we have adversaries and enemies and, you know, there's going to be a struggle involved and prayer is an essential part of -hmm. that struggle. It's funny. I often have students um, who don't understand why the Christian life doesn't suddenly rule out any suffering. Mm -hmm. Surely if God is good and loving, his people wouldn't suffer, to which I say, If you want a religion without suffering, you should go to one that doesn't have a cross Mm -hmm. at the middle of it. Wow, yeah. Because it's it's true that we will all suffer. The question is, will we suffer meaningfully and redemptively? That's the question. That's great. Now, we're almost out of time. I wish we had a whole other hour to go on, but there's one question I do want to ask you. It's a little bit on a different uh, area where you've also done some serious theological reflection. You've written about this doctrine of being made in the image of God, which, again, is a great Calvin theme, Mm -hmm. an Augustine theme. Uh, And you said that being made in the image of God 
can fuel the practice of forgiveness. I'm not sure we often associate the image of God with forgiveness. What's the connection? What I have found as I teach and research on forgiveness is that the problem with most thinking about forgiveness is it tends to treat the perpetrator, the one who has done wrong, as a monster, as someone who's not really human. There's a very great danger in that. The first danger is if those who commit evil are not human, then we can't learn from their mistakes, and we need to learn from their mistakes. They need to be human as we are human. And the second reason why that's a problem is that we inevitably become what we don't forgive. So the freedom for someone who's been wounded by evil is the freedom of looking at the perpetrator and saying, that could be me. It's very radical. It's very uncomfortable. But it is the source of freedom because once you realize that, of course you would want to forgive yourself. And of course you would want forgiveness. And so then suddenly you are able to loose that person and you are able to forgive for your own sake as well as for that person's sake. But the message really is, we become what we don't forgive. And I want to become something different than that. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Karen Peterson Finch. She is a professor of theology at Whitworth College. Thank you, Karen, for being here today and for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Timothy. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.